Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean and Stuart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Uh, great to connect as always, guys. Well, let's pile on the bandwagon that is the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war. We've been covering it in the hub uh, this week. Some great articles today for people to check out as we record uh, Friday, the 24th of February. Guys, um, maybe to try to add something new to this anniversary reflections and commentary, I thought it might be interesting to just go around the horn and talk a little bit about what we possibly got wrong about the early assumptions about this war, how it would play out a year later, uh, where we are now, and maybe does that give us any clues as to where this conflict goes next? So, Sean, let me go to you first. Maybe what surprised you about the last year? What do you think maybe we've either underestimated or overestimated in trying to wrap our heads and minds around this conflict? It's hmm. a big question. I, I think if I had to pick one, it would be the emotional appeal of the kind of Ukrainian story uh, to people around the West. Um, you know, that there's a tendency for people in the West to, to grab on to these kind of international issues or incidents and and for the, that interest to, to dissipate after they've done a tweet or, or held up a card in front of them that says, you know, I stand with so-and-so. Um, I, I think because of uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky's kind of magnetism and, um, social media savvy, he's um, been able to put the Ukrainian story in front of Western audiences on a more sustained and durable basis. And I, I think for that reason, um, public support, we had polling at the Hub this week, public support for ongoing support uh, to to Ukraine remains uh, strong uh, and, and durable. And, and that's not something I, I would have predicted a, a year ago. Yeah, my contribution maybe to take another slice at this is to look at Russia. You know, I think there was a, a lot of early hope um, that the sanctions would be devastating to the Russian economy, to the validity, the moral kind of uh, support of the Vladimir Putin's regime was getting from its own citizens. And I'm struck a year later by, you know, one simple factoid that the IMF is predicting that in the next 12 months, the Russian economy is going to grow faster or more than the UK economy. Now, that's kind of winning the ugly contest, but it's still significant to the context that, you know, again, you can look at this big rally that Putin had this week, 100,000 people, and you can kind of just, you know, notch that up to state theater and propaganda. But the media sources I listen to, and the BBC and, and others, uh, it seems that there is a large segment of Russian society uh, that is uh, supporting Putin, supporting this war, uh, 
you know, uh, feasting on the kind of narratives of uh, Russian nationalism, ethnoculturalism, this idea of a civilizational struggle of Russia against the world. So I, you know, I take no pleasure in this, but I think a year later, Putin domestically has gotten way more out of this war than I certainly thought he would. He's been able to crack down on any and all dissent, and he's been able to recraft Russian society around kind of, in a sense, a kind of total mobilization that invokes all these, um, again, ethno-cultural, ethno-national kind of motifs and stereotypes and credos that I think he's always wanted to impose on Russian society, but he couldn't get away with in the past. Um, disaster for Russia on the battlefields this year, but domestically, Putin's entering the second year, Stuart, I think, in a in a surprisingly strong position. Yeah, it's really a strange situation because if you think back to a year ago, and even, you know, a year to about nine months ago, I was always kind of waiting till what's the point where the Russians kind of break through and start to win this thing or, you know, start to get in deeper into Ukraine. And it never really turned out that way. And we were all kind of following the Ukrainian victories. And I think it has reset everyone's expectations for what we're looking for out of this. And I'll just quote um, this. I think this is interesting because there's it's worth kind of steel manning the sort of pro-war, pro-Ukraine point of view from the West, because I was reading Andrew Potter in the line yesterday, and he did something which I think a lot of these writers don't do, which is what he told us what he's looking for. And it was, it's now clear that nothing less than a clear, undeniable victory of Ukraine is acceptable on terms Ukraine itself has set. And I would just say, if that's what we're tethering our foreign policy to, I think we should have a debate about that, because... You know, we, I think we've gotten a little bit carried away by Ukrainian victories. I think rightfully so, because they've been heroic and courageous. Um, and we maybe expect more out of this than what's actually going to happen. And I would just say the other thing that came out yesterday was a poll from Canadians who are a little more um, a little more cautious about this conflict, saying 71% think that they would prefer Ukraine to win. Perfectly reasonable point of view. 32% believe more military equipment should be provided. Um, so there's a gap. I think Canadians have a preferred outcome, but maybe are less inclined to support this to the end. Um, and I think that's maybe what I've noticed in the last year is our expectations from what can happen and what is possible have kind of buoyed around. And I don't think anyone really knows what to expect from this. A lot of great insight there, guys. Uh, holy smokes, I feel self-conscious that you guys brought your egg game. And uh, and I have an, if, if I have a, an excuse, it's because I have a a two-year-old and a, a 10-week-old and so i'm kind of <laughs> running on fumes you know when i think about this and maybe this maybe this reflects my own personal bias um i think back to my dialogue last year with francis fukuyama um when we talked about some kind of big big picture ideas liberalism nationalism you know the extent to which people are drawn to struggle and kind of heroic narratives and themes and 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 you know there's a, a a common commonly held view that we've grown a bit kind of fat and dumb and lazy in an era of relative peace and prosperity and i think the reason there's been this kind of visceral reaction um in in a, a large large parts of of the west is because um zelensky in particular and the ukrainians in general have kind of spoken to something inside us um that kind of hasn't been uh 
spoken to in a long time. Um, and that's just the sense of, you know, uh, uh, Rudyard's an old historian, you know, the kind of Whiggish narrative of great mm-hmm. men doing great things and um, um, that go beyond the kind of mundane parts of our lives. Um, uh, but I think you guys are both right. And it's a, kind of a mm-hmm. message I think that we've tended to stick to on on this podcast, which is, you know, we have to follow our heads as much as we follow our hearts yeah. uh, on this on, on this question. Let's just in our remaining moments of the segment cast our minds forward because I, I think there was a big development this week in terms of the Biden administration um, kind of threatening to release intelligence showing in a sense that China was uh, you know tacitly or directly providing military support or would be providing military support to Russia. What I worry about the coming year is, uh, and it really will be up to China, is that does this war become a proxy conflict that looks much more like a conflict from the Cold War era, where in effect you have two blocks. You suddenly have not just an isolated Russia, but a, a Russia, you know, tacitly directly supported by China on one side, the West, Europe, United States, what is it, two leopard tanks from Canada on the other. And the battle is, yes, over the future and fate of Ukraine, but it it's actually bigger than that. It becomes a contest award about the future of the global order. And it's a contest between the per- perseverance and continuation of an American-led global order, economic, diplomatic, uh, democratic, versus uh, what you hear more and more, especially from the Chinese diplomats, this desire for multipolarity. Big word. What does it mean? It just simply means a series of great powers, each pursuing their own interests, each uh, giving each other room uh, out of respect or necessity to do so. Um, and I worry that we are at a point here, we're not fully understanding just how big the inflection could be. If China joins Russia, wow, uh, that is a watershed moment that will influence uh, history in the course of events, not just for the coming year, but the next few decades, because it will set up this much starker Manichaean contest between a new bloc that is not just China and Russia, it's Brazil, it's India, it's almost all of Africa. There's a lot of the rest of the world that, you know, I, either misguided or not, is very frustrated with the last 25 years of American uh, global leadership, uh, which has had some highlights, including, you know, financial crises, inflation, failed invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq. I could go on and on. There's lots of incredibly positive things that American power does in the world, but it's, it's also contested. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about that, if that's reaching too far, but this China piece, Stuart, I think is just critical to keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I will mention last time we talked about this, I got an email from a lady calling us a bunch of like Neville Chamberlains, and uh, <laughs> she said she would never listen again, so I can I can slam her if I want. Um, <laughs> so, but I do take that seriously, and I, I've written about this before, and I would also urge people to think about the Treaty of Versailles. Um, you know, one of the underrated parts of history is that John Maynard Keynes and 
Friedrich Hayek were both really opposed to the uh, Treaty of Versailles. Hayek was Austrian, so it affected him pretty personally. And Keynes was on the team that negotiated it, and it haunted him because he knew what would happen if you did that to Germany, and he was right. Um, so I think we need to remember that you know we have to look beyond a few years, and I'm glad you kind of pulled it out that way, Roger, because you know there's not a lot of good outcomes in Russia looking right now. It, it is great that the Ukrainians have done what they've done. Um, and in my heart, my wife right now is in Kiev. Yesterday, she was interviewing sexual assault survivors from this war. And, you know, there's a part of you that hopes that a lot of this is Ukrainian propaganda, but there's a lot of it going on out there. It's not. Um, so hearing those stories from her, um, it puts a little bit of a pro-war uh, <laughs> vibe into my head. Um, so I, I think when you look at what happens, though, beyond that, at the end of this war or as this war um, tapers down, it's hard to imagine a situation that's better than the one that we had one year and one month ago. Um, it's just a bad situation. So I think the way that I try to look at this is mitigating the terrible outcome that Roger talked about. I don't know how to do that, but I think we should have that in our minds and the sort of bellicose feeling. You know, I read Potter's piece, which is a good piece, um, but there's a lot of talk about craven people, unserious people, basically people who don't agree with him, um, that we should keep fighting this war as hard as we can. But I would maybe say we should get away from that kind of thinking. It doesn't make you courageous to sit in a Starbucks and write pro-war <laughs> pieces for the line. Um, but I think what we should do is have a real kind of rational discussion about it. Spicy take. Uh, well done. <laughs> uh, can I just take up Rudyard's point about China? Because I, I, I think I think he's right. Um, that if these reports are correct, it does represent a, a kind of step change um, in this conflict. Up until now, uh, uh, China, to my based on my understanding, has actually been using its financial influence with Russia to be something of a break on Putin's uh, uh, instinct towards escalation. Um, and so if these reports are true, and China is not only taking uh, its foot off the brake, but is actually proposing to uh, essentially put its foot on the gas and and accelerate or an escalation in this conflict um, by providing military equipment and support. I, I think Rudyard's exactly right. It will only necessarily uh, cause the West to itself to kind of double down, and and that's when you're in a, in, in a circumstance where um, this thing can really um, take off uh, in directions that are kind of hard to fathom. And so I guess in, in that sense, Rudyard and Stewart, it's a kind of a crucial moment for China. As you say, uh, Rudyard, is this a moment where it's going to kind of exercise um, global leadership, so to speak? Or is it going to use um, this conflict as a means to, I think, probably accelerate its own plans to bring some sort of of confrontation uh, to, uh, to a, a kind of culmination uh, with the West? We've all been expecting that to come in the years and even decades ahead. Um, but maybe China is, is, for a host of reasons that we've talked about on this podcast, slowing economy, demographic challenges, political unrest, et cetera, et cetera, has decided now's the time um, to, uh, to you know, move forward with some kind of act of, of aggression and provocation. Yeah. So my final point on that is just, you know, China, I think, is torn between you know, an economic reopening after COVID right now, that is, you know, it, the, the cup is definitely kind of half full. Um, they are 
struggling, especially in their property sector, the world's single largest asset class and something insane, trillions of dollars worth of Chinese condos unoccupied through their major cities. So they they have big internal domestic challenges, but you could see from a real politique kind of statecraft perspective, you know, this this war is this war is in China's interest. I mean, it's depleting NATO's arsenal. It's, uh, you know, forcing the United States to redeploy its its global force posture um, away, partly uh, from Asia uh, to to Europe. It's doing a whole bunch of things that are in China's interest. So I think it's a question, Sean, of, you know, do they forego short-term economic gains uh, for a kind of geopolitical strike on the U.S. through Russia and through Ukraine. I think we'll know in the next couple of months. Well, guys, let's take a break. Uh, on the way back, uh, the other side of the show, we're going to talk Roxton Road, immigration to Canada, refugees, um, a, blue, a brewing kind of uh, political storm here. Um, and again, another sense, it's an issue we talked a lot about on this podcast, but you know, state capacity in Canada, like boy, what are we doing? Spending billions of dollars seemingly having little impact or result on, you know, something as seemingly basic and elemental as, you know, border security and fair and humane treatment of refugees. Back right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griff is your executive director of the Hub, joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. So, Stuart, I'm going to come to you first. Give us a praises of uh, this Roxton Road controversy. Why is it re-emerging now? Uh, what is it, for those of us not indoctrinated into the kind of nuances of uh, border crossings between um, the United States and Quebec, part uh, by supposed re uh, refugee claimants. Yeah, I, I think the main reason we're talking about that this now is because of Quebec Premier Francois Legault. Um, he decided that we should be talking about this. And uh, Pierre Polyev has kind of taken this up, which um, I think that does show you where the politics lie on this. Um, you know, the Trudeau government has kind of a bureaucratic response to this where you know, the fundamental issue here is the safe third country uh, agreement with the US, which means that if you present yourself at a border crossing from the U.S., we say, sorry, you're already in the U.S. It's safe there. Um, you can stay there. Um, and people are directed back. But if you go to a non-border crossing area, an irregular border crossing area, um, the agreement doesn't apply. So every time this pops up, we talk about this agreement and the government says, look, we're trying really hard to get the U.S. to agree to stop allowing this to happen. 
Um, my sense is the U.S. has no real, like, I don't know why they would do it unless we offered them something in return for doing that. So I'm sure there's a lot of negotiating going on behind the scenes. Um, Polyev's response is to say, just close it and stop people coming across there. Um, stop allowing people because what we're doing is basically funneling people all to this one area. There's facilities there, there's people helping them. And the government's, I think the government's sense is that this is the safest way to do this because if you don't do it this way, you know, we've had people die trying to cross here in the winter. Um, it gets into a really bad situation if you don't have these kind of facilities. And also it would disperse along the border if we didn't have that. So mm. that's kind of the back and forth. And I think Polyev sees kind of a opening here to hit the government on what is probably, I think for most Canadians, uh, a fairly cut and dry issue. Sean, can you just give a little color here? Because there's large public expenditures associated with this. And then also, as I understand it, there's a little bit of controversy in that the percentage of people that are coming across all claiming refugee status, the percentage that actually are certified by Canadian officials as refugees at the end of the day is a, is a, just a, a small fraction of this, of this migrant kind of route into, into Canada. So it just from a public policy perspective, it seems like a bit of a disaster. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, Canadians are tremendously generous. You know, we've uh, our refugee numbers as a share of population over the past several years has been high. You know, I think Canadians were quite proud, for instance, of the number of, of Syrian refugees that we took in 2015, 2016, 2017. But I think Canadians rightly expect people to follow the the standard process. That's just mm -hmm. fair, right? Um, and the standard process is. Uh, asylum claimants, refugee claimants, um, present themselves at a um, conventional port of entry, or 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 um, and uh, and then are subjected, as you say, Rudyard, to uh, the standard uh, of review of uh, to determine their eligibility. And the problem here is that these people are foregoing that process. They've uh, they're going using what's colloquially called an unauthorized border crossing, which, as Stewart says. Um, is looking increasingly like a regular border crossing because the government has set up facilities and uh, and officials and so on to process these people, which, of course, in turn, uh, has created a magnet uh, to pull people uh, to this. Supposedly, Sean, though, I mean, we're talking to the tune of billions of dollars, as I understand it, on this, not not just the crossing, but then all the administration that's required to assess what's now in the order of tens of thousands of people that have come through this Roxton Road route. Yeah, to say, and this is Quebec's point, Rudyard, uh, to say nothing of the fact that uh, while these claimants' uh, eligibility is being assessed, they're eligible for uh, provincial income support, uh, uh, health care, and, and other social services. Yeah, and, yeah. and Legault's argument, which strikes me as pretty reasonable, is the federal government has created this magnet uh, on Quebec's border by uh, essentially validating an unauthorized border crossing. Uh, and while the laborious process of assessing eligibility is carried out, Quebec's on the hook for covering the cost mm -hmm. for, as you say, what has so far anyway turned out to be mostly um, unfounded claims. And so uh, I'll stop rambling in a second, but I, I, I don't I don't think it can be overemphasized uh, that um, Canadians support refugee processes going through the kind of standard uh, uh, um, 
uh, process, for lack of a better term. Uh, I, I think the risk here is that the Cho government has um, has effectively incentivized people to break the law yeah. um, by entering at an unauthorized it's, border crossing. It's and jumping. Exactly. Exactly. At, that. Ex- and it's at the expense of those refugee claimants who've done everything yeah. that we've asked of them. And, well, and, and so many I, of them, many of them in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Ukraine, elsewhere, who, as you say, but so Stuart, it just, again, I just don't want to be overly pessimistic here, but it just sounds like an absolute schmozzle. Like, is there some political rationale behind this? Is there, I don't know, just some, uh, deeply held belief on the part of this government that um, that these claimants should be afforded every benefit because it's somehow, I don't know, a reflection of some core priority or value on the part of the prime minister and the government. Because from any kind of rational application of expense, or as Sean said, the small percentage that are actually legitimate claimants, uh, this seems like a policy that other governments would never have let run to this extent. I don't yeah. get it. I I will present two possibilities there. One is that they're just afraid that a crackdown will go wrong and will look bad politically. Or you know, you could. There is the possibility that people could die um, if that were to happen, and they would be on their hands. Um, so I think that's probably a pretty rational um, concern. And the other one is that. I, the political symbolism here is pretty easy for Pierre Polyev because it's sort of a law and order issue and Canadians in general don't like illegal immigration. And, you know, the number that surprised me, I probably should have known this, but 40,000 people last year came across Roxham Road. Um, that's about 10% of our normal legal immigration that comes in. Um, that is a crazy high number. And I think that most Canadians would look at that and say, that's, we're not doing immigration properly if that's how that's happening. Um, so I think for the liberals, the, it could come down looking as if they're anti-immigration to people in their base who would be appalled by that. And so I, I wonder if maybe um, the the negotiations on the safe third country agreement are going better. Nobody will really talk about it. The immigration minister says, you know, we're working really hard on it. They're hoping to have something within weeks or months. Um, so one prospect is that they have something in the works with the U.S. that will put this issue to bed. Um, I think that's really the only reasonable possibility here because 40,000 people and an angry Quebec premier, I, I think that's an issue that they just don't want uh, in the headlines for too long. And I would just say, guys, um, you know, that, you know, if I have one kind of core belief it's that uh we ought to uh protect um uh the canadian bargain of relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration and uh one of the reasons that i'm so exercised about um the fact that the true government has essentially incentivized um this growing problem is that i i think it, it it puts that at risk you know one of the kind of most oxymoronic and bizarre parts of all of this is that you know, keeping in mind that this is an unauthorized border crossing the Trudeau government closed it during the pandemic uh from march 2020 to november 2021 how a government closes a border crossing that doesn't not supposed to exist is a you know subject for another uh podcast but it in a way, it validates Polyev and Legault's argument that they can do this because they've actually done it. 
Um, and so I, I kind of think that this is a bit unsustainable. Uh, and I, if I was Pierre Polyev, I would, I would keep, uh, at it. I would go down to Roxham road, um, and uh, speak to people there, speak to officials there. I suspect we're going to start to get leaks out of the immigration department and the border services, you know, complaining, as you say, Rudyard, about the, um, uh, about the costs associated with managing this unauthorized border crossing uh, that's become an authorized official de facto authorized border crossing um, <laughs> and the diversion away from processing legitimate refugee claims. Stuart mentioned 40,000 last year uh, as 10 percent of our overall immigration target. It's, it's almost 100 percent of our refugee target. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I just think this is unsustainable. And, you know, if I was being un unfair, I would say an example of the Trudeau government's tendency to put kind of symbolism and tweets and all the rest above, you know, just sound yeah. public policy and public administration. Yeah. My final comment on this is it's wonderful how kind of Trumpy the political cycle right now is for the Trudeau government. They've got you know, election interference, they've got, you know, chaos at the southern border, as, you know, Fox News would always characterize it. So I'm not saying it's the same, Stuart, but it's just amazing how these issues, and I guess they're affecting, you can think about it, you can think of the politics of the UK, many European countries, uh, immigration, election interference, these are all uh, you know, reoccurring themes, but it's interesting that for this government at this moment, all the kind of uh, vulnerabilities, the soft, you know, underflesh that, you know, the press and others nipped at at Trump tormenting him seems to be coming home to roost on a Trudeau government, which is just a complete antithesis of, you know, Trump in terms of policy, you know, uh, posturing, you know, you name it. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's almost like a minefield for Pierre Polyev, too, because, you know, the issues at Roxham Road, I think a lot of Canadians care about that. But there is the possibility that you could get a little too bombastic with your rhetoric on that and alienate people. And the same with the election interference. We talked last week about, you know, there's a lot of Chinese Canadians who will be put off if you go too far and how you criticize this or you don't surgically target the Chinese government and not the Chinese people themselves. So, uh, yeah, there's it is interesting. These issues, I think, benefit Polyev. Um, but there is always that cliff that you can fall off if you go too far. Yeah, the Wiley e. Coyote moment. Well, I'm pleased to report that at the end of this podcast, Sean Spear has revived himself. He joined uh, at the top of the hour, bleary eyed uh, in Frankly, Sean, pretty rough shape. I gotta say <laughs> that that ten month old and two year old, you know, I'm sure nights are. <laughs> I I look I look back fondly to that period. Actually, I don't. Um, <laughs> but you look good now. I think the coffee's helped. This conversation has put some vim and vigor into your step, and uh, I'm gonna wish you the best for the rest of your day. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, this is always a, a pick me up on on Friday mornings. And uh, yeah, great conversation. I'd encourage people. We now have a, a, a Twitter account dedicated to uh, the Hub podcast, not just the weekly roundtable, but our biweekly series with David Frum. And of course, our twice weekly episodes uh, of Hub Dialogues with um, leading thinkers, writers and scholars. You can find that at Hub CA podcast. 
uh, our producer, Molotar Guzman, is always on the lookout for a great new guest for Hub Dialogues. Next week, we have some great episodes. Uh, American public intellectual and journalist Damon Linker on some developments on the American right. And then a really fascinating one, guys, on next Thursday. Stay tuned with uh, uh, a sociologist named Todd Rose, who's uh, done some really interesting work on the gap between what we tell pollsters and, and what we actually believe and how mm. that is in a way distorting our politics. Uh, and then, of course, we'll have our regular biweekly episode with David Frum, where I think we're going to take up some of these issues of election interference. So a big week on on Hub Podcasts. Yeah. So join the over 7,000 followers on um, at Hub dot uh, hub ca podcast so as in canada hub ca podcast uh to get all the latest programs and check out uh sean's interview with tom dequino this week the former head of uh, the Canadian business council really fascinating kind of look at ottawa politics and power in the modern era in canada so uh thanks guys we'll do this all again next friday Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.